Well, guys, welcome once again. Um, we are we are going to go to the book of Genesis, but I actually invite you to turn with me in your copies of God's Word to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews, first of all, in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, and we'll begin there in the first verse. Hear once again the inerrant, the infallible word of the Holy God. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which were seen are seen were not made of things which do appear. By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead, yet speaketh. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was not found, because God had translated him. For before his translation he had this testimony, that he pleased God. But without faith it is impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world, and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. By faith Abraham, when he was called out to go into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out, not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed, and was delivered of a child when she was past age, because she judged him faithful, who had promised. Therefore sprang there even of one, and him, as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that seek such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, an heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, that an Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also he received him. Figure. As far as the reading of God's holy word, and may he richly bless it to us as we meditate on it this morning. Well, beloved, we are taking up the book of Genesis again, but... um, well, first of all, uh, as we will be doing so just this morning and then two-week hiatus, um, I decided it would be best for me to review um, as much as possible just the 24 chapters that we've already looked at. 
um, in the preceding months. So I'd like to do that this morning. And I wanted to do that by, by first of all, directing our attention to how the New Testament itself leads us to think about the events we've just read. As you look at Hebrews 11, uh, we could have turned, for instance, also to Acts 7 and uh, Stephen's sermon. In both instances, you have the New Testament witness to the events that we've considered before in the book of Genesis. And there's one consistent element that we encounter. Uh, Hebrews 11 makes that element perhaps the most plain. The element is, is that these ones of whom we're reading, right from Abel down through Isaac, these ones were possessed of the self-same faith that Christians have in the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that, that's something that the New Testament brings to our attention time and again, and of course, most poignantly in the text we just read. My question to you, though, this morning is, how does that inform our reading of the book of Genesis? Of course, the Old Testament entire, but, but how does that form, if you like, our understanding of the text we've already considered? Well, I want to keep that question in front of us this morning, and, and really I want the remainder of our time to be something of an elongated answer to it. I want us to remember, first of all, how we are dealing with the book of Genesis, first of all. What, what are the mechanics behind our reading or behind our studying of these, these chapters? Well, if you remember back now literally a year ago uh, when we first began uh, Genesis 1, You remember that I mentioned to you a little bit about the method that we were going to be adopting. And the first aspect of that method was that we were going to look at these chapters historically. We were going to treat these texts as they are inspired history. Uh, These are not fable. Uh, These are to be taken literally as historical events. And so I want you to remember that that has certain implications. Uh, Any historian inspired or not, has to make decisions when he's telling a particular account. Um, I think uh, on a very popular level, there's the idea that the history is just history, and, and fact is just fact. And, and the idea is, is that there's no real connection between making choices about how that fact is communicated and the fact itself. Well, that's just not true. Every, every historian, again, inspired or not, has to make choices in how he communicates historical fact. And the inspired historian has done that. And he's done that perfectly. Which means then, by implication, every single element of these histories is important. Not just the events themselves, but even the manner in which those events are communicated to us is crucial. In other words, friend, there is no extraneous detail in anything that we've looked at. Every word, every form is crucial because it comes to us from the inspired historian. Now, if we keep that in front of us, then we also understand that we are looking at 24 chapters that, like all of history, show us transition. We need to keep that in front of us. As the scriptures present to us this timeline, we are watching transitions, and part of our job is to understand that we are seeing transitions, movements, in certain families, of course, But in a larger scale, we're seeing movements, not only in world history, but especially in the church. And so part of our task is to be mindful of those changes. And then the third aspect of our historical reading of this text is that you and I, when we approach it, we are trying to read this immersively. 
And friend, this is part of biblical hermeneutics. This is basic ideas about how to read the text. When you and I are encountering a historical aspect of God's word, you and I are supposed to see that it is, first of all, truth. And secondly, all of its details are supposed to be painting for us a picture. A picture that you and I are to critically adopt. That is, you and I are to really, really, as it were, put ourselves as much as we can in the event that's being portrayed for us on the pages of Scripture. So that's the historical element that we've adopted. As we've gone through these 24 chapters, we've thought carefully about, well, one, the very way in which these events are communicated to us. We've thought also about the ideas of transitions and exfoliations that we see in these 24 chapters. And we've tried to read these texts as much as we can in an immersive immersive sense. Now, all of that, of course, leads us to that second element that we've adopted as we've looked at these 24 chapters, and that is that we've looked at the literary structure of all of them. Now, friend, I think, at least I hope, that as we've gone through these texts in the preceding months, um, we, we do detect that there is a structure, an intentional structure, to how these things have been communicated to us in the book of Genesis. In other words... The inspired historian has given us these things in a particular manner with particular emphases, and those emphases are detectable based on the structure of the text itself. And when I'm talking about text structure, what am I referring to? Well, I'll just remind you how we're dividing the text in front of us. You remember that in the book of Genesis, you'll have a phrase that is repeated ten times. So in those 50 chapters... There's one phrase that occurs ten times. And those ten phrases, well, that one phrase repeated ten times, really forms for us divisions. That is, divisions brought to us by the inspired historian himself. And and really, providing for us then the structure of the whole book. You remember that thus far we've encountered several of these divisions. Chapter 2, verse 4, all the way down to 426, is one of those divisions. These are the generations of... The Hebrew word, again, you remember, is toledot. And the idea is is that these things are really chapter markers that the inspired historian has presented to us. So the first major division, 2-4 to 426. The second one follows immediately, 5-1 to 6-8. The next one, 6-9 to 11-9, and then 11-10 to 37-1. Those are the ones we've encountered thus far. Now, there are some minor divisions as well in that. Uh, 10, 1 to eleven nineteen is a minor division. And again, eleven twenty seven to twenty five eleven, 11, um, also a minor or subdivision. But we've looked at the text in this way for a particular reason. Folks, if, if it is the inspired historian who's giving these things to us, then it's not just the event itself that is crucial, but the way in which the, those events are brought to us is significant. Um, and, and so that's why we're paying attention to these things. Again, I probably mentioned this to you before, but our chapter divisions are not inspired. Um, and the, the running joke among scholars is that sometimes the Archbishop of Canterbury, who made those divisions, his carriage slipped and he made a division where he shouldn't have made it. Sometimes in the book of Genesis, uh, you do wonder if that might have been the case. But these ten divisions that we have in the book of Genesis really have given us the structure of our study. And for the remainder of our time, going back to the question I asked you out of Hebrews 11, how do we read this text? I want us to walk briefly through what we've already covered, keeping these historical and literary considerations in front of us and keeping before us the idea that 
These things are presented to us in sacred scripture to show us how the saints of old, possessed of the selfsame Christ, possessed of the selfsame saving faith, lived in their, in their epoch in divine providence. So what I want to do, again, very briefly, is just walk through how the Lord really brings this to us in these 24 chapters. If you go back to chapter 1, Genesis 1, 1, all the way to chapter 2 in the third verse. Of course, you have what we commonly refer to as the creation week. Now, I could, I could rehearse all of that for you, but, but just allow me to remind you that there's even a structure within the creation week that's crucial. The first three days of creation, you remember, we found that God was forming things. He formed. And then in the last three days of creation, he filled the very things he formed. So, in the first three days, you have the firmaments created, the seas, the skies, all of land, all of those things created. The last three days, all of that which is created is filled with living creatures. Why is that important? Well, again, if we're looking at this as it were from a distance, seeking a whole holistic view of what we've looked at thus far, is not the Lord showing us the orderliness of creation? Is he not showing us in the very first chapter that everything that is, is created in an orderly way and ruled by divine wisdom? There was no fish before there was water. There was no bird before there was air. The Lord created all things in an orderly manner. And that then, of course, becomes crucial for us when we look at the rest of this book. Because what do we encounter then, really, from chapter 3 and on? It's the undoing of that order. When we encounter divine judgment, and we'll see this in just a moment, there is a special attention paid to the idea that that which was created is now, as it were, being undone. The first chapter presents to us an orderly, sinless world. Now, when we come to chapters 2, 4, down to 4, 26, we, we encounter, first of all, the blessedness that man enjoyed. Now, friend, I, I won't go over this in great detail, but you remember how, how the historian presents this to us. He create, God creates Adam out of the garden. Then he brings Adam into the garden And by the way, you remember the name change for the Lord takes place in chapter 2 at that point. Before, God was simply referred to as Elohim. But even in our English translations, you'll notice that the word Lord appears in small caps, meaning that this is the tetragrammaton. That is, this is the name Jehovah. This is the covenant name of God. And so the idea is Adam was created and brought into covenant with God when he was brought into Eden. And you remember where he was brought? He was brought into a place of blessedness. He was brought out of a place that was not as well kept, not as beautiful, not considered the garden of God as was Eden. And then when he was in Eden, you remember that God brought the lesser creatures to him and all of that to demonstrate to Adam, first of all, that Adam did possess all dominion over the lesser creatures. And secondly, of course, to prepare the way for Eve, to remind Adam that he required a help meet. And then God provided for it. Now what did all of that teach us? If the first chapter of the book of Genesis is teaching us the orderliness of creation, that there is no chaos, 
that God is actually in the business of ordering things aright and wisely, then what does the second chapter teach us? That Adam already experienced that God and God alone was the source of his goodness. And progressively he could expect good from the hand of God. And all of that prepares us then for chapter 3. Where in chapter 3, at the suggestion of the serpent, the idea is, is that Adam had to procure his own goodness. He had to make himself what God had grudgingly refused to make him. And so, man fell. In chapter 3, you're supposed to recognize as well that this is the fall of God's vicegerent. This is the fall of a man who was truly on earth, God's representative and authority. And so this was cosmic treason. And what follows? Well, friend, you remember, of course, that the curse then falls not only upon Adam, but upon all the lesser creatures as well. And so that which was once orderly, once created well, once clearly a demonstration of, of, of the divine rule and coming through the conduit, as it were, of Adam, now all of that has been disrupted. Creation, as Paul says in Romans 8, now groans. But even though that curse falls, you remember that the promise is made and there will be separate seeds. The promise is, of course, that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Salvation will come through the one whom God had appointed. But really from that point on, you and I encounter in the book of Genesis that great diversion that will occupy the rest of our time in the book. The division of the seeds. The seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. In other words, as the writer of the Hebrews would remind us, the church versus the world. How do we see that in chapter 4? Of course, you see that in Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel, of course, represent to us the first divergence of these two bodies. Now, as you look at this text, what you and I are reminded of is that Cain was the one who offered, and, and seemingly offered in extraordinary measures, his own kind of devotion to God. This was rejected. Abel, as the writer of the Hebrews reminds us, offered instead by faith. And beloved, as you look at that text, you'll notice that there's a parallel. After Cain kills Abel, you'll remember that the parallel actually looks very much like what we saw in the garden with that temptation. In the Garden of Eden, you remember, the serpent comes to Eve, tempts Eve, Eve and Adam fall, and then they receive sentence. It's precisely the same thing. And if you remember back to our time now almost a year ago, in chapter 4, not only is that basic paradigm clear, but even the words that are used parallel what you find in chapter 3. And so the idea is is that, that here you have a recapitulation or a reenactment, if you like, of sin. In other words, friend, what the book of Genesis is teaching us is that Adam's transgression in the garden has begotten again and again the same kind of cycle. It will always be temptation, fall, pronouncement, pronouncement of sentence. Now, there's something else that we can't miss either. 
a crucial element that will really, really lead us, not only through the book of Genesis, but right through the Old Testament. And that is the idea of exile. You remember that when Adam and Eve fell, they were exiled from Eden. But do you remember what happens when Cain falls? Cain goes further east of Eden. And the idea is the further you get away from Eden, the further you are from God. Eden, at the gates of Eden, likely you and I are supposed to understand that was the place where the church gathered for worship. And so as the descendants of Cain continue to move eastward, further away from Eden, they remove themselves further and further away from the corporate worship of God and so from God himself. Now, at the end of, four, at the end of chapter 4, you and I have a statement that at first seems a bit strange. It is that at the end of that fourth chapter, then men begin to call upon the name of the Lord. But you remember as we thought about that, that's really a revival. The church of God is now going to be revived through the line of Seth. Now, in 426, right through chapter 5, what do we encounter? We encounter the propagation of the church that is biologically, but even as we've seen before, through the names of these men. We see that there is a godly line where, where even though the line of Cain and the line of the world is going further away from God, the line of Seth, that is the church of God, remains steadfast for a time. When we get to the end of chapter 5, you remember that even in the very names of these patriarchs, the Lord is anticipating judgment. There is defection in the church. The church is revived in the birth of Seth, or Enos rather, and now is declining until you get to chapter 6. Now chapter 6, of course, is the flood. But how should we understand the flood? The flood is not the judgment on the line of Cain. The flood is a universal judgment, but it comes because the church generally makes defection. The line of Cain was already was already corrupt. The catalyst for the flood was when the sons of God, that is the church on earth, made defection and became worldly. And therefore, therefore, days three and day six of creation are undone. In other words, you have the firmament, the land plunged back into the water and man and beast swept off the face of the earth. Of course, that leads to the question, what of the promise? The promise, of course, is preserved in the line of Noah. But can I remind you uh, what you have, really, at the end of chapter 9? It's a striking thing. When you come to Genesis 9, you have again, now that the church is smaller, numerically, you have again an instance of defection. You have Ham's sin. Ham's delighting in his father's defection. And that prompts the question, what will happen? What will happen? If the defection of the church before in Genesis 6 produced worldwide calamity and judgment, what will happen when again the church makes a defection immediately after, after her salvation? And of course the answer is that there would be a curse. It would fall on Ham and Canaan. But even in that curse there was the promise made to Shem, that God would be the God of Shem. Now, 
That then, of course, narrows our focus once again. The book of Genesis is not giving us world history. The book of Genesis is tracing for us the history of the church. And so our focus from then on becomes the line of Shem. And how is that promise fulfilled? It is fulfilled in the calling of Abram. In chapters 11, 10 down to 12, 20, you and I are supposed to see that what was promised to Shem in chapter 9 is secured or really instantiated in the life of Abram. Now, very briefly as we close, this is where we've spent most of our time, looking at the life of Abram and as that covenant promise is exfoliated for him and his family. And trusting that the details that we looked at before are still somewhat fresh in your minds, I do want to just really quickly and thematically review what we find in those chapters and hopefully tie together the whole narrative. So when you look at chapter, at chapter 12, what do you find? You find God fulfilling what he had promised through Noah to Shem, that God would be the God of Shem and his people. But I want you to notice, as you move from chapter 13 and following, what do you find? You find that promise gradually exfoliating. What do I mean? Well, you find there that that what was there in seed form promised to Abram in chapter 12 now becomes very much more clear as you move through the chapter. There is a gradual as a gradual clarity that comes to this idea of covenant. Now, as you move from chapter 14 and following, what do we find? We find, first of all, Abram's clear blessedness. God has blessed him temporally. And so what do we, what do we make of Lot? Lot, who is now joined to Abram. Lot, who's a nephew, loved like a son. Will, will Lot be the one who will be adopted into Abram's home and become the heir of promise, the child of promise? You remember in chapter 14, there's a divergence. Lot will not be the child of promise. Chapter 15, God appears to Abram in a dream. Abram immediately asks, Well, shall Eleazar of Damascus, my servant, shall he be the child of promise? And God says, No. Chapter 16, Ishmael is born. Is Ishmael to be the child of promise? God says, No. Chapter 17, God confirms to Abraham through the covenant sign of circumcision that he will, Abraham will conceive seed that is not Ishmael, and that seed shall be the child of promise. Chapter 18 through 19, you find again that that God has separated Abraham and his family from the rest of the world, Sodom and Gomorrah being under judgment. It will not be the line of Lot. It will not be any of them that will be the child of promise. Chapter 20, you have again God coming and delivering Sarah herself so that she could in a year's time be the mother of, of the child of promise. Chapter 20. You have, oh sorry, chapter 21 then. You have the birth of Isaac. The child of promise. Everything from chapter 14 on has been leading to Isaac. And God has been leading us from thinking of any other child, any other contender but him. But then you remember this. You remember that again in chapter 21. There's a division in the home. Isaac, the child of promise, is persecuted by Ishmael, and Ishmael is sent into exile. 
And that's crucial. Because when you come to chapter 22, with Ishmael exiled, God calls Abraham to sacrifice the child of promise. That is, to make Abraham sonless once more. Now, as we've seen chapter 22, you and I remember, of course, that the Lord God was there, showing really to the world that Abraham's faith was in the Lord God all the while. The child of promise will be preserved. All of salvation will be procured just as God had promised. But that's really the point, isn't it? Up to this point, you and I have been driven to think about the child of promise in terms of what we've thought about in Genesis 3.15. It would be through Isaac that the people of God would be called. And of course, as Galatians 3 reminds us, that seed that's in view there is Christ. All of this has been leading us to think about the Lord Jesus. And when you come to those last two chapters that we considered, for instance, Abraham and Gerar, and then also the episode when Isaac finds Rebekah. All of those themes are really held together by this broader idea that the Lord is training our minds to think about the salvation of the nations. Again, the calling of the nations that have been scattered in, in, in Babel. The undoing of the curse that came with the fall through this one seed. Now, friend, as we look back to Hebrews 11, I think we see that the apostle, the inspired apostle, is not there pulling an idea out of thin air. The very structure of the book of Genesis is leading us to think about Christ and showing us how the people of God lived and believed in that promise. And so when we continue the book of Genesis, we have to keep all of that in front of us. Uh, God willing, in two weeks' time, um, when, we, when we take up chapter 25, when we go now to the life of Isaac, we'll see the very self-same theme. Here you have the church anticipating eagerly, eagerly, the coming of Christ. Well, there is one point of application from this review that I think is, is useful for us. God had promised and God had sustained the church through all of these things. But he was also training his people, training his people to wait patiently for his salvation. Um, what's true in the broader history of the church is true in every individual life. Uh, we are often called to wait patiently, but to wait faithfully for the Lord's deliverance. Let's close in prayer. Our blessed and eternal God, we thank you and we praise you for your mercies towards us and your many kindnesses. But Father, most of all, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who has made unto us our own salvation, the strong rock, the man behind whom we can hide, who is our great deliverer and redeemer. Father, we thank you and we praise you that you did not leave us, that you did not leave us under the curse we praise and we thank you that though, Father, we have recapitulated Adam's transgression so often, that yet you were pleased to look down, to send the Son of your love, and to deliver even the likes of ourselves. Father, we pray that you would fix our gaze upon him, 
How needful is it that our faith will be increased and more greatly fixed on the one who alone could crush the head of the serpent and deliver us as firebrands from the fire. Father, fix us upon him, especially as we come to worship in the hour, in the hour following. Lead us to Christ, we pray, as we ask all in Jesus' blessed name. Amen.